Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between, welcome back to the Stu Simpson Show podcast. And today we've got a very special guest indeed, a friend of mine, Rob Halliburton. Hello, Rob. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Uh, yeah, good. What is it what would, you would like to talk about today? I know what we're going to talk about. The audience doesn't. What we're going to talk about? Uh, photography in general, but uh, a project that I'm, I've sort of headed up myself called the, the Camera Donation Project, uh, which is gathering cameras that people are not using anymore or want to see used by other people and, and give them into, to schools in the, the northeast region. Excellent. So that, give us a background some, about where you're from and who, what it is that you have you always been a photographer? Is this something that you've always done or as a bits in between in your life where you've not had the opportunity to take pictures and stuff? Um, also, that's not an unusual story. It started uh, back when I was seven year old. Um, and you'll, you'll have other photographers, I'll tell you the same tale, being gifted uh, a camera from a relative. And it was my mother that gave us a camera to take photographs of my grandmother's uh, inauguration as mayor of Wall's End. And, and back in the 70s, it, it was one of those things that it was a really big deal. So there was processions through the, the street. The, uh, all the local boys' brigades, scouts, and all of those groups. Just to get a camera. <laughs> Yeah, that was for me, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was one of those things where I, I was given that first chance to actually take a photograph in a box camera with 120 film in it, colour film as well. So my mother really pushed the boat out because I knew it was going to be a big, colourful affair. Um, but it was that opportunity to take photographs myself without being told what to do. Uh, and that's what started it all off, really. And I've, I've still got that camera and I still use it. What sort of, was a box brownie, did you say? It's a box camera, yeah, it was a, a Conway box camera. Uh, Can you explain using... to the people listening what, what they do? Because obviously these days uh, there's not a lot of film stuff going around. People are mostly digital. So what is a box brownie camera? Box camera is literally what, it's, what it says. It is a box with a, a lens at the front, uh, the ability to, to put the film into the back of the, the camera and look through a, a viewfinder either from the top or the side of the camera to uh, to take a photograph. Uh, very simple, one simple switch, one shutter speed, maybe a couple of apertures where you could actually affect the amount of light going into the camera, but it is literally just a box. Excellent. Um, so, right, bits and bobs about the cameras, what people probably don't even understand today is what's an aperture, what's a camera speed, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's things that people should, they will still be aware of it, even with using digital cameras, you, you'll still know about these things. But you're right, it's a sort of modern paradox that the, there's something like 15 billion photographs taken every year now with phones and, and digital cameras. Uh, but people quite often don't know that relationship between affecting the shutter speed, whether it's fast or slow to capture a, a moment or the uh, to get a bit of blur and movement in your, your cam and your picture. Uh, and the aperture is the ability to open up or close down uh, a set of blades, which will allow light to come into your camera uh, or close it down to make it a, a little bit darker, depending on how bright it is outside. Uh, and all these things are done automatically in phones these days. You don't even have to think about it. It just happens. So was there like when you were first had the, your first camera, was there a magic while like waiting for the actual pictures to develop? Did you develop them yourself or did you send them off somewhere? 
No, seven-year-old, they wouldn't let us. Um, yeah, it was down to the chemist. It was a good old-fashioned one down to the chemist at the bottom of the street and uh, gave it in and you had to wait for a couple of weeks for it to come back. Uh, at that time, I didn't know what happened. It was just the magic of taking it down to the chemist and then coming back and picking it up. Uh, but it would go off to a big warehouse. Uh, there was a At that time, I lived, I'd say, North Tyneside and Walls End. Uh, there was certainly a number of large... Uh, developing warehouses in the North Tyneside area at that time. And everybody's films would go there, be developed and then sent back to the chemists for you to come and pick it up. So it was that sense of anticipation, waiting for it to come, uh, which you, you don't get now, everything's very instant. It's there within a fraction of a second, you can see what you've done. Uh, then you have to wait to see if you're wonky horizons or blurred or out of focus, but it was still exciting. So but that's, that aspect of them um, taking a picture doesn't really exist anymore. I think when you're composing a picture and you're trying to capture a moment, uh, because everything's so quick and easily and uh, disposable now, you don't get so precious about film? There's certainly the, uh, the argument that uh, people are freer to take photographs. They don't have to worry about the, the cost of it. And, and that's obviously digital's. Uh, essential for that, and I don't ever decry that, although I, I predominantly shoot and film uh, for my own pleasure. Uh, as as you well know, I, I shoot digital when I do any kind of commercial work, uh, because it is convenient, it's much more sensible to do that, um, and you, you've got more opportunity to, uh, to explore when it comes to, to digital. But that sense of satisfaction of actually loading the camera up considering the composition, making sure you've got the right kind of film, making sure that you you have the right settings on the camera, and then taking that photograph on a film is something that I, I really do enjoy, being a part of that, that process of taking the photograph. So when you, after you shot your first photograph um, and it got developed, and did your mom like it for one? The, I can't remember any kind of accolades or anything like that. Um, you know, so this, these are brilliant. In fact, they weren't. Um, they were wonky horizons and out of focus and blurred. But as I, I mentioned, when I do talks to, to schools and things like that, the, the three most precious photographs I've got left are, are from that film, um, where I can show them these are the first three photographs I ever took. No, they're not brilliant but they are probably the most important pictures I ever took because it encouraged me to, to keep going. And so where did you go after, after the first um, the box camera you had? What was it, the next camera? Um, lots of different kinds of cameras. So I usually hand-me-downs. So whenever, um, and it was usually my mother that, that did the pho photography in our, in our household. Um, mainly that's why she's never on any of the pictures. <laughs> it's always me, my dad and, and my brother. But... Um, it was usually if they got a new camera, then it was handed on to me to, to play around with. So, you know, 110 Instamatic cameras, all kinds of things like that. Polaroid cameras, um, the sort of the Polaroid Swinger was a, a one that we, we've got a lot of photographs from still in albums. It was Tartan covered albums. What's a Polaroid Swinger? Ah, you'll have to look it up. It's, uh, there's some really cracking adverts for it. Um, from again from 1970s, um, and the it's one of these instamatic cameras where you had an instant film in the back, so you pulled it out, the film, the picture developed on a, a chemical background, and you peeled the picture off. 
Oh, so those are the square, uh, the square ones. Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, excellent. I didn't know it was called um, the swinger. So it's got nothing to do with Pampas grass then. Well, <laughs> that was one of that was one of the models, and it was a white model. And the uh, the Americans certainly sold it with these really catchy tunes. So look up on YouTube, Polaroid Swinger, and look at the adverts. You'll love the adverts. Um, but it was one of those things that it was there to encourage the households to buy these cameras, and it did. My mother bought one. Uh, there's lots of photographs of my my brother when he was born um, on these Polaroid uh, pictures in these tartan covered albums. Yeah. Uh, that no, I, I gather gather dust, but when you do get them out, they've got that smell and look and feel to them that, that evoke a, a memory. Absolutely, I, I think photographs these days are going to be a relationship is changing, and, and it will continue to change. I'm, I'm sure as technology develops no pun intended. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, because I look back on old photographs and I have a different relationship than with anything that I would scroll through on like Instagram or, or Facebook or anything like that. Um, so do, do you think there's, have we lost some of the magic perhaps by going digital or is it just a different sort of magic perhaps? I, I was going to say that it's a different kind of magic. I mean, at least I never decry any form of photography because the idea of documenting what goes on around you is a crucial thing, and whether it be for your own personal use or whether it is for heritage reasons. If you look back at some of the photographers that have purely just went out into the street and took photographs of shop fronts or you know streets around Newcastle, for example, or people in the streets, um, so like like so circa Lisa Continents, pictures of biker. Um, before it was demolished to build the wall. Uh, they're evocative, the, the, the memories that come flooding back when you look at these books um, are, are the things that I think we're missing now. These things don't get put into books often. Uh, people keep them on their phones or keep them on their computers and don't share them uh, in the same sense. Yes, you've got YouTube and Instagram and all these other things, but it's not the same as opening a book just about that particular subject. So when you look at it and say, oh, well, that's where my granny used to go and buy our sausages from. You know, it's just little memories like that, which for me is it's a really important part of photography to, to record the heritage of, of what goes on around us. And many artists normally have, you mentioned other people there, so I was thinking many artists have normally got influences in how they paint, how they draw and uh, where they sort of draw their inspiration from. Do you have any, is there any photographer, does it work the same for photography? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, Jimmy Forsyth was a, a West End, Newcastle West End photographer. Uh, I never got the opportunity to meet him, sadly, but... I did. Um, yeah, he's a great bloke from all accounts. I, I met somebody who cared for him when he was later on in his life, when he was in a care home. Um, and certainly I, I know very much his attitude towards taking photographs was to, to record Scotswood in that area as it was being demolished so that people would remember uh, I mentioned Circa. Um, mm. She obviously is one of the, the Amber Film and Photography Collective. And I had the, the pleasure and honour of actually meeting her and working with her um, when I volunteered uh, down at Amber to, to digitise their archive of, of images um, and the, the side gallery uh, where they the display them. Um, there's any amount of photographers, but I mean, in that sense, I don't have any one particular style um that influences I mean, i'm a bit of a 
So it's a bit of a martini man, uh, any time, any place, anywhere, yeah. and of anything. Uh, and that's what photography is for me. I'll see something that I like and, and I'll enjoy it. It doesn't matter that I'm not a landscape photographer, that I'm not a portrait photographer, uh, but I can do those things. Um, I, my own personal love of photography is to do with recording heritage um, and, and recording people doing simple things. That's what I like doing. So but going down to like the Durham Miners Gala and photographing the people there and the fashion that goes on, which is one of the ongoing projects that I've got going. Um, it, it fascinates us to, to see the way that people respond to politics and to, uh, to the actual event itself uh, and the things that they have on their, their T-shirts, the slogans that they wear. Um, so for any, I've got I've got listeners from different parts of the world. So to mm-hmm. explain to um, these people who don't understand what the Durham uh, Miners Gala is. Okay, Durham Miners Gala uh, was an event that was held annually, uh, where all of the local coal mining um, families in the northeast of England got together in one place uh, in a town, in a, a town called Durham. And they celebrated being miners. They celebrated working down the pits, but it was a way of, of celebrating um, the family as well, because the, the guys who worked down the pits worked so hard. It was that day when they all come together to celebrate. And it was usually what we called best bib and tugger, your best suits, your, the best uh, your Sunday best that you would go to church in where you would turn up to this big event. And I'm talking, you know, 200, 250,000 people uh, would turn up to this kind of thing. But they would march from the towns around about where the pits were into the, the main town centre with um, a brass band usually representing each of the pits and a big uh, banner which represented their particular pit. Uh, so a spectacular um, thing to, to see, uh, and, and it still goes on now, even though the pits are closed. Um, there's also an element of politics to it. Usually you find that the, uh, the local labour uh, political movement would go to talk about socialism, uh, especially uh, at these meetings. And so you find it's in, in, the day is in two parts, uh, or a few parts actually. There's the march, there's the political talk, and then everybody gets very drunk afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so it, it's that, a great event. <laughs> oh, you should go. It's, it, one, it, if it's back on next year, I'm almost sure it's going to be back on next year. You really should go. Oh, absolutely. Um, it sounds like right, right on my street. It'd be good to be back among my people again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do, I do mm. miss I missed, uh, Newcastle in the northeast terribly. So you, you can take the, the Geordie out of Newcastle, but you can't take the Newcastle out of the Geordie. So what happened after um, you said, did you go to college to study the photography? I did. I, I failed me A-levels miserably because uh, I, I got involved in, in a band. I was, uh, I was a bass player in a band uh, at the time and didn't really do much studying. Uh, found alcohol and women and yeah. music. And unfortunately, that didn't really go very well with... Um, with study. So I went, I applied to and got on to um, 
the foundation course in art and design at the Bath Lane College of Arts and Technology in Newcastle, the, the Newcastle CAT. And that was in 1981. Um, and that's designed to give you a chance to build up a portfolio of artwork uh, and you experience lots of different styles of, of art in the foundation course. Um, painting, drawing, sculpture, fashion, um, photography, uh, what other things, but you, you basically tried everything for the first few months and then you specialized on one particular subject for the rest of the year, build up a portfolio of work to then go on to, to do interviews for degree courses at, at university. Um, and it was a, a fascinating year. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, but not what I was actually looking for. I actually thought I was going to learn more about the technical side of photography, but it was totally the opposite. It was geared very much towards art and the art world itself. Um, and it changed my attitude towards photography very much from being technical to being more creative with the way that I used photography. Excellent. I didn't get into the university as it happens. Me interviews were rubbish. Um, sure. But uh, in saying that, it did form an important sort of stepping stone in, in the style of photography that I started to develop. And so I've seen and I've been the subject of some of your um, photographs as well. So you still got a love of music, obviously, because you take a lot mm -hmm. of pictures of bands and things. Yep. Is, that, is that still an important part of your life? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, every, every year um, I, I help out at a, a local festival nearby where I live in, in um, Northumberland. It's called the Boundrum Bar Fest. Um, and as you know, you've, you've played there yourself. Um, it's a fabulous, uh, very intimate um, gig with, with music of all sorts, but usually sort of folk, blues, a little bit of rock mixed in there. Um, some fabulous artists I've seen there over the last 10 years where I've been helping out. Um, but I also take, you know, do gig photography uh, on request um, as well. So if there's, there's bands out there, who've asked us to go along and take photographs particularly for them um and yeah i like i like combining the two yeah so did you drop the bass completely i still have a bass i still play around with it but i'm, I'm nowhere near uh gig worthy <laughs> shall we say then again back when i when i started i mean we, we were supporting bands the likes of um northeast rock bands it was the, the new wave of heavy metal at the time um so bands like venom um, Tigers of Pantan, nice. for those people who are around this area who, who yeah. know them, um, Raven, who, I mean, these, these guys are all sort of getting back together and starting to gig again yeah. um, because it's the end thing to do. Um, and, and it's good to see it. Uh, but, it's quite, yeah, it's, I, I can almost see that the, actually now well, doing this podcast, I can see the networks which I didn't understand, I didn't know about, because uh, mm -hmm. Ian Brown, who I've had on previously, he also has made music videos for the Tigers of Pantan. Yeah and, I, and I, yeah, and I didn't even know until you've just said that there. I was like, oh my God, everybody knows each other. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah, it's, it, well, it's, it is a coincidence. I mean, I, I live in the same town as Ian. Uh, I live in Holtwistle, uh, Um, But it was one of the things that we, we came across each other through other creative uh, situations, usually music, but then I knew Hibney some were doing uh, videos. And uh, and he mentioned that he was doing the, the latest video for the Tigers. I, I thought, yeah, that's unbelievable, that, you know. So we, we actually supported them at, in, a, in a gig a long time ago. Where did you play? Um, where? Yeah. Just just around what? Sorry? 
Where? Yeah, yeah. Where? Yeah, yeah. Just from uh, venues in Walls End. Actually, ironically, the Venom's first gig was at the the Walls End Methodist Church. And you think that uh, Europe's best known death and thrash metal band uh, played their first gig at a, a Methodist Church hall. Yeah, it's quite amusing, really. Um, Sounds about right. So if, if you just turn, <laughs> if you turn yourself upside down, the cross is on the right way then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there, there was the uh, the Rainbow Rooms and the Co-op at Walls End, the Mem, uh, the hall, the dance hall that was there. Um, so it was mostly around the Walls End, sort of North Tyneside area where we played that kind of thing. Um, and it was it was exciting at that time. Um, the, the bands that were coming out of the northeast. Um, which were part of the, the new wave of high metal were um, were very important uh, when you look back in what they did, especially the likes of Venom. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, so you didn't get into university, uh, but you still did. You still carry on with your photography? Yeah, I always had a camera. Um, I I worked in a, a little photo lab in Baker in the East End of Newcastle called Harrison's Photoshop, and he was the first guy in the northeast to have one of these one hour film developing uh, shops and you had the, a lot of very clever uh, business ideas and you actually put the machines where the, the prints that you, you made from these machines came out in the window so people could stand outside of your shop and watch their pictures coming out of the, the machine. Um, and it, it gathered a, a lot of interest and people come from all over the Northeast to, to bring the, um, the films to get developed there. But it was very much just a, a one of those opportune things. I wrote to every camera and film business I could find in the Yellow Pages at the time, uh, the telephone directory. And as it happens, he replied and said, well, come along and, and give it a go. Uh, it wasn't what I thought about doing, but it was interesting. It was still involved in photography. Um, and I did that for about a year and a bit um, and then bumped into a friend of mine who uh, in a pub and we were talk, comparing wage packets and he had just joined the police service and his wage packet was three times the size of mine. So it was, uh, get me one of those application forms, will you? I can uh, buy a lot of then, cameras with that. Exactly. Uh, for the next 30 years, that's what I did. Uh, uh, a police officer in the Northeast um, and, and thoroughly enjoyed my time doing what I did with, with the police, uh, but then retired in 2013, after doing my full stint, and got really back into photography again in a, in a creative way and, and looking at other things I could do. And, and Amber, as I mentioned before, uh, was an opportunity to go and, and work with them, uh, which I never thought I would ever have the, the chance to do something like that because of the importance that the Amber Film and Photography Collective had uh, in social documentary work from the 1970s onwards, in fact, from the 60s onwards. And they were based uh, on Side Gallery? Side Gallery is the, the sort of public-facing part of it. That's that's the where we can go in and see the work that's done by documentary photographers in the Northeast. But the Amber Film and Photography Collective itself, although they're based there, um, they, they actually don't have anything to do with the Side Gallery as such. It's, it's run as a separate concern but still part under the same umbrella of, of the whole thing. So I used to work um, for the Newcastle Bookshop. Yeah, which is just around yeah. the corner from it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so people would always go up the stairs to get to the side gallery. So yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And the side gallery is still there and Amber is still going, which is great. Um, and, and they're starting to do a lot more with new 
younger photographers as well, which is good to see. Uh, it's a it's a really important gallery um, to have in in the northeast, um, and the social documentary work that that they display there. Um, I, I've never been disappointed by an exhibition that, that I've went to see that they've had on there, um, and and it is very much a socialist movement. Or, or certainly, it was when it first started. It was looking at the um, the inner city deprived areas. It was looking at how people were suffering. Um, uh, under the, the governments at that time and, and poverty in the area. Um, but it, 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 the, the films and the stills images that they produced from that time is a very important record for the Northeast. And are they still, still doing stuff now in the, in the um, deprived areas? This, it's been a few years now since I, I stopped working with them. Um, in the, I was digitizing their archive. They've got a massive archive of photographs that they, they've used for, for their gallery exhibitions and they wanted to put them online. So that's what I was doing with them. Um, but yeah, they, they, are, they have been doing some work recently, circa Lisa Compton and uh, they went in back into North Shields into the, um, the ridges to take some photographs and do some work uh, with them. Uh, she did a, a follow couple of follow pieces in Biker as well. Um, they're, they're all important things to, to have a look at if you're interested in Northeast social documentary photography. Uh, certainly have a look at Amber's work. And speaking of exhibiting, do you have you exhibited much yourself? No, um, it, it's something I don't really do. I think I get a lot more pleasure out of encouraging others to do photography. I, I've certainly come to that conclusion. Um, I, I've been a part of uh, Hexham and District Photographic Society for a long time. And yes, the exhibit, and yes, I would help out, but it doesn't make, give me any enormous pleasure putting my own work up on the wall. Uh, the work that I did with Amber, working with schools in North Tyneside, looking at heritage of the shipyards and the fish key, and encouraging youngsters to, to take photographs, gives me far more pleasure than, than ever seeing my own work. Uh, displayed and exhibited um, to see the the faces of the kids when they actually uh, take photographs and, and display them themselves is a for me a, a very special thing. Um, so you've talked about encouraging other people. I hear like well, you've told me that there's a you're doing a new project which is specifically encouraging other people to get started using cameras. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, certainly. It it harks back to that that first. Uh, opportunity that I was given by my mother, that, that gift of the camera to me to take the photographs. Um, in 2019, I went into my local high school to do a talk at the request of, of one of the art teachers there, a guy called William Pym, who himself is, a, is an artist and, and sculptor and photographer. And, and he asked me to go into to talk to his A-level students about my photography and, and what I do. And Part of the conditions of the kids doing the A-level course is that they have to have a digital camera themselves to do the, the course. So the parents have to supply them with a, a digital camera. And they all had cameras to do that, but it was quite obvious they all had a very genuine interest in film photography, which is why uh, William had asked me to, to go in and, and do the talk. But it was also very apparent that not very many of them had film cameras. And I've got, as my, my wife will 
always attest to far too many cameras. Uh, I can't go to a car boot sale or a charity shop and leave a camera because it would be sinful. Uh, they have to be rescued and used. Uh, I'm Corbridge car boot sale this morning and got three cameras. Um, and they'll all be going. They're all going to the project, but uh, beforehand they would go into my collection. So I knew I had a whole lot of cameras I could donate to to the school for the kids to use. And they had at that time they had thirty eight students doing A-level photography, which is astonishing. And it's great to see, but there was no way, and it, it was a big ask to expect the parents to buy two cameras for them to do it. So I donated half a dozen cameras that I knew I could give them. Um, and I just put the word out to friends, family, uh, people uh, at the, the local photographic societies and, and, uh, and on Facebook to say, look, if you've got a camera you're not using anymore, if it's just sitting in the back of your cupboard gathering dust, even if it is for some sentimental reasons, give it to me. I'll get it in the hands of a, a kid who's going to enjoy the gift of photography and enjoy using them to create photographs. And that's how it started. Um, and then December last year, I took 23 uh, cameras in for the high school for them to use, uh, mostly 35mm film cameras, but a couple of medium format ones as well. Um, and, and they're using them now. Um, and then as a result of that, uh, I contacted the other local school in my area, the Havenbridge High School, uh, and they also wanted cameras. Uh, and I got them a mixture of digital and film cameras. And then it's gone on from there. Other schools have been in touch. Um, so I decided to make it a bit more official. Uh, created a website for it. Uh, got a Facebook page for it. And it's starting to, to prove beneficial. There's lots of people coming to me now and saying, yep, grandfather, grandmother, whoever it was, uh, relatives passed away. There's a box full of camera gear. I uh, would prefer to see the kids using it rather than going to the tip or, or trying in vain uh, to sell it to the law. A lot of these cameras do have a, a value to them. Uh, it's it's much more valuable to see the kids using oh, the, the cameras. Yeah. And so, what's the name of the website? It's cameradonationproject.org. Um, so it's uh, it's very simple. Uh, if you just Google camera donation project, you'll probably come across it. Um, and the same on Facebook. If you you search for camera donation project NE, because originally it was it was just Northeast. And it still is at the moment, uh, but who knows? It, it could expand out. Yeah, but sounds certainly, like, sounds like something that could grow like Topsy. It could uh, very much so. It's one of those things that the more uh, interviews like this that I do, and people find out about it, um, the more posts I put up, word of mouth, and it, it does spread. Uh, so at the moment, there's been. Hexham, Hayden Bridge, Prudder High Schools, I've supplied cameras to. I've had a request from Long Benton High School, uh, another school in the Northeast, and, and it's starting to spread around. Um, the, the, it's there. I mean, people have got these things, they've kept a hold of them, they don't use them. Uh, and the, the worst thing you can do with an old phone camera is just to let it sit because it'll, it'll gum up, it'll stop working yeah. the shutter stops working so you've got to exercise them you've got to have them being used and the oh. kids definitely use them 
Well, I've, I've got a couple which I'll send send you away. I don't even know if they're workable anymore, but I guess you and other people in the uh, in the community will know if they will be able to be used. Certainly, other, yeah. Other than that, do you need tripods and lighting and bits and yeah. things like that? The, the, the likes of um, tripods, the, the, certainly the uh, high school in Hexham have, have been lucky. They've, they've just totally built a, a whole new school. And part of the request that went in was that they, they had a room set aside for a dark room, which they've allowed. So they've got a, a purpose-built dark room in that school um, with all the, the plumbing and, and enlargers that they need. But there's other schools who are starting to ask whether or not we can get enlarger equipment, um, developing equipment, so developing tanks, things like that. Um, they'll all be put to use. And, and even if we can't find uses for them immediately, always one of the conditions is that if you're going to give me the equipment, I will try in the first instance to get it in the hands of somebody in a, a school or a youth club or a, uh, any kind of uh, group like that, first and foremost. But if we can't, then there's the potential to sell it to then buy other equipment that the kids can use. Yeah. So at the moment, I've got 20-odd Canon AOS film bodies with no lenses right? Uh, because People are keeping the lenses for their digital SLR cameras. Ah, um, so the bodies you can get for next to nothing. I mean, I've got these these bodies for, I think it's about 30 quid for the, the lot. So uh, a lens will cost, on average, between 30 and 40 quid to pull on it. Uh, so if I can sell something that's very valuable, that wouldn't necessarily be suitable for a school, I could end up being able to buy 10 lenses to put onto those 10 bodies that I can then give to 10 kids. Um, so that that's the way that the project tends to work. Um, most of it goes in the hands of the kids, but if it's worth um, selling to fund more cameras to be put out there, then that's what will happen. Excellent. And in my, I love old black and white real photography. Mm -hmm. Is that even still possible? Uh, it's definitely definitely possible in my outhouse. <laughs> I, I, I develop all my own film. Um, I make all my own developers from scratch, from chemicals, um, color developers as well as black and white. So yeah, it's very doable. You, in fact, you can even develop black and white film in things you can buy from your local supermarket. Really? There's a, a, yeah, there's a developer called Caffinol, which is a mixture of the cheapest worst horrible uh, roast coffee that you can find from somewhere like Aldi or Little, um, vitamin C powder and uh, sodium carbonate. Stick wow. them all together and you can develop film in it. Never. Yep. So go Google Caffeinol. You can yes. see it's a massive movement across the whole of the world, actually. People develop and use coffee. Uh, and tea and beer. It's anything that has um, what they call caffeic acid inside of it. It's got nothing to do with caffeine. It's a, it's actually a, a chemical that's within uh, the, the coffee called caffeic acid, which is the main development agent. And then that's boosted by the vitamin C and the sodium carbonate. Yeah, that's it, it's a great developer. Yeah. Like, the only experience I've had in the darkroom was when I was at university and I had did, like, um, a couple of months of photography as when you're doing your foundation and all the rest of it. And it was, so I was like, well, there's the, there's the darkroom. Go and have some fun in there. 
as well as taking pictures. <laughs> uh, but the, the, but that, that in itself is a completely different part of the process other than just lining up a photograph or just taking a snap somewhere. And how, how much of that these days is even used? Uh, not, not a huge amount. Uh, certainly not in, in commercial uh, terms. It's, it's all predominantly digital. But certainly there's a massive movement back into film photography. Uh, the price of film cameras, certain film cameras, has skyrocketed recently. Um, things that you would never have expected, mind you. I mean, the, the hipster value of, of some cameras uh, has put them far beyond what they actually should be. Really? Uh, but, you know, they're hip to have them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, there's, like I say, I'm, I'm encouraged the fact that the schools that I'm involved in are, are keen to do uh, their own developing. Uh, but there's scope to, to do a hybrid of the two where you can take it on film, you can develop the film and enjoy the process. But if you don't have the ability to have a dark room to print your, your negatives, you can scan them in. And, and yes, it seems a bit ironic to, to then go back to digital from what is a film uh, process, but it gives you the ability to, to then see the images that you've taken. Um, and, it, and it's all part of that photographic process, that experience of, of taking the photographs, uh, just another way of, of actually showing it. That's excellent. It's interesting that you can cross over like the new and the old. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's always been like that in a way because your, your top level fashion photographers, your top level journalists, uh, uh, photojournalists, they would rarely do their own developing and, and printing. It, it would, they would be shooting the film, sending it off to somebody else, to a lab who would be developing it and printing it. So it's not unusual in that sense. So um, you, know, you, you still do those things. There are still a number of shops in the area who will take film in and get them developed for you in the same way that I did when I was younger and sent it to the chemist. Uh, but I enjoy being part of that process. I enjoy the chemicals, the danger. I mean, there's photographs of me with all my protective gear on because um, it, it is dangerous and and I have to be that more, much more careful because I, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer a few years ago and I have to just be a little bit more careful. So masks, gloves, yeah. Things like that have to have to be uh, essential in those circumstances. So, but it's uh, it's a it's a great thing to do, and I'll I'll give you a camera to, to use, take some pictures, and you can develop your own. Hooray. And you'll enjoy it. Yeah. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Yeah. So, if people want to come and look at your um, your photographs, where can they where can they find you? Um, I've got a a very scant website called Halliburton.photos which has got some examples of the work that I've done, but I've, I've neglected it quite a lot recently. Uh, there are some photographs of yourself on, on that um, website as well. Uh, some of the headshots I did for you and some of the, the early um, uh, earlier band yeah. shots uh, uh, there on there. Um, and some of the, the, the street photography and, and sort of social documentary photography that I do as well, there's examples there. Uh, but more importantly, go to camera donations, project.org and, and have a look at uh, the projects that I've already done uh, and see if there's any cameras and gear that you can donate uh, and I'll get into the, the right hands. We can encourage the young people to get creative. That's brilliant. Not just young people. Not that's, just young people. Not, that's not just decrying the old people as well. Cause I, I've got an idea of, of going into some 
um, some of the likes of shuttled accommodations and, and, and old people's homes and things like that because they've got some fantastic stories they can mm-hmm. tell, uh, especially when it comes to heritage and, and seeing what they can produce would be just as interesting as to what the kids could do, I think. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting if you kind of introduced the kids to the older people. Yeah, and that, do do the same kind of thing where, where they can combine the, the idea of telling the stories and then going out and taking the photographs uh, together. I think it's a, it's a fascinating idea. It's not new, it, it has been done before, um, but each area has its own heritage, its own identity, uh, things that older people, and sadly I'm getting to be one of those older people, uh, <laughs> who can talk about what it was like to do those kind of things that, that some of the, the kids now just kind of comprehend. Yeah. Um, but then again, I suppose when I was younger, I could never comprehend what my mother and father went through when they were young kids during the war. Um, so it, it's the same all the time, but the, the stories to be told uh, and stories not to be forgotten. Uh, and this is a, a definitely a way to do it. Absolutely. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing these podcasts, because it's in, it's an important, this in itself is a documentation of, uh, of the, the, the process and how the process happens and why it happens. Um, so thank you very much for being a part of it and, uh, and telling us what you do. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, thank you very much, Rob. And um, hopefully I shall see you soon. And thank you for everybody who's listening to the Stu Simpson podcast. Take care, my friend. Bye. Bye-bye.